you have a Bible, go ahead and open it to Psalm 74. And if you don't have one with you, we have strategically placed Bibles nearby under the chairs there. If you want to grab one, we'll be on page 486 today. Page 486 in the Black Bibles, it's Psalm 74. And in this series called Collide, Emotion Meets Truth in the Psalms, we've been learning how to have an authentic relationship with God. Um, We have a God that gives us permission, not only gives us permission, but invites us to pray and to sing and to interact honestly with Him. Uh, As we have concerns and fears and worries and doubts, we can bring those to God. We've been seeing that again and again throughout the Psalms. And as we bring our very real pain and hurt and worry to Him, um, He transforms us. As we talk to Him about what our concerns are, but also what we know he's already said in his word. We speak his word back to him. God uses that to transform us, to change us, to begin making us more like him. Uh, And so we've had this great journey. We've now moved into what is called sometimes book three of the Psalms. It's the middle section of the Psalms. There are five books or five sections within the Psalms that somewhat mirror the five books of Moses, the first five books of the Bible. And so in this middle section, what you see sometimes is kind of what you see in stories where it starts to look like the bad guys are winning. So you're going to see more negative psalms here, more psalms that have to do with things like the exile and the destruction of the temple and more heartache sort of psalms. Now, those things are throughout the whole book of Psalms, but there's just a stronger concentration of them here in this middle section. So we began that last week with Psalm 73. Now, Psalm 74 is talking about the destruction of uh, the capital city and destruction of God's temple in Jerusalem. God judged his people. They were rebelling against him. And he said, all right, we're just going to get rid of the whole thing and scatter you everywhere. And so you can read about that story in Second Chronicles about how Babylon, this great empire, came in and destroyed God's people and their temple. And here you have this psalmist saying, God, what's going on? Is this, is this the way it's going to be forever? Or will you come back and save us Again, So Psalm 74 this morning, we're calling it, Remember Your People. So what we see is we see the psalmist crying out to God in a moment where he feels like God's completely abandoned him, saying, God, remember us. Save us. Remember us. Remember, God, you're the God that promised to save us, so will you do that? Because it doesn't feel like we're being saved right now. Everything is falling apart. And so I, I know because we're human beings, right? We have that much in common. I may not know everything about your life, But I know this, that you've been here before, that you may be here right now. You may be in a place right now where you feel like your life is in utter ruins. That's how the psalmist feels right now. The psalmist feels like everything has been broken down, everything is falling apart, and he's calling out to God saying, God, will you remember the gracious promises you made to save? Will you remember your salvation promises? So that's what we're going to see here in Psalm Chapter 74, it says it's a maskeel of Asaph, and just a little note, and this is one of these things that you could, we could talk about for hours if you want to have coffee some other time, but Asaph was a guy that lived during David's time, right? So David got these worship bands started in Israel, but Asaph Asaph had died years ago before the destruction of the temple. So when we see a a psalm of Asaph or a maskeel of Asaph, what we would understand is that this was like the band that Asaph started. Does that make sense? So that's kind of our best understanding of that. Again, that's, there's con- confusing stuff like that that we could spend a lot of time talking about. I just want to focus on the psalm itself, okay? So we can, if you want to make an appointment with me, buy me some coffee. We'll talk more about the, the textual issues. Um, but let's, let's pay attention to what God has to tell us in this psalm. It says in verse 1, O God, 
why do you cast us off forever? Oh God, why do you cast us off forever? Why does your anger smoke against the sheep of your pasture? Remember your congregation, which you have purchased of old, which you have redeemed to be the tribe of your heritage. Remember Mount Zion, where you have dwelt. Direct your steps to the perpetual ruins. The enemy has destroyed everything in the sanctuary. We'll pause there. I'll I'll read the rest of the text as we move through this morning, but I'm going to pray that God would allow us to to hear what he has to say to us through Psalm 74 and teach us. Let's, Let's pray together. God, we thank you that you do invite us into your presence We thank you that you've revealed yourself as a a God of grace and a God of love. And so in those moments, Lord, where we feel like everything is ruined, everything is broken down, uh, we pray that you would show us your grace, that you would show us your love, help us to see it. Um, God, we see in the psalm this morning uh, the question of of where are you? Are you going to be gone forever? Have you forgotten us? We pray that you would remember us. And God, most of all, I pray this morning that you would help us to to remember you. Um, We pray that you'd speak to us in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you all ever forgotten anything really important? Any of you ever had a hard time remembering something that was really important, right? You forgot to write it down. That ever happened to you? Some of you? You can raise your hand. It's okay. We're all all real here, right? It's happened to me. I've forgotten some really important things before. Um, And so instead of making fun of myself, which I like to do often, this morning I'm going to pick on my parents. One time my parents forgot something really important, um, I was about, I think, six months old, and we were attending a little Episcopal church called St. Francis, and uh, my parents uh, got everybody ready and left church to come home at the end of the day, and my mom was talking to my dad, and she said, where's David? And my dad said, I thought you had David. They had come in separate cars that day. She said, no, I, I thought you had picked up David from the nursery, and so Poor baby David was stuck still in the nursery at Little St. Francis Church. Uh, Fortunately, um, they remembered me, right? They remembered their child. They remembered the sheep of their pasture, and they ran back to the church and and rescued me and picked me back up. That's, That's kind of like the story we have in the Scriptures. God remembers the covenant He's made with us. He's adopted us as His children. He remembers and He rescues Here, this point in the story is the people of God saying, we're stuck here. You've forgotten us. Where where are you, right? And so what we need to recognize when we come to a hard text like this and when we're living in a hard place is that it feels like forever when we're in the middle of that hard time, right? Like I know some of you right now are are in a battle with with cancer or uh, a divorce or some kind of addiction or some kind of hard place where it feels like forever, and I want to encourage you that, that you can honestly share that with God. Like, th- that's amazing to me that, that the psalmist honestly just says that to God. God, this feels like forever. You're going to cast me off forever? Where are you? What are you doing in, in this, right? What are you doing in this tragedy that I'm living through right now? What are you doing here, God? Where are you? And we can pray that to God. Now, now, when we back off and we look at the whole perspective, we saw this last week in Psalm 73, we can get the bigger perspective that our life and whatever tragedy we're living in now is, is just a small part in the bigger picture, and we're headed to a future where everything is going to be made right. And so we can sometimes back out and have that perspective, but in the moment, it's okay to be honest with God and say, God, this feels like forever. I'm, I'm dying here, God. What is going on here? What? 
Why are you doing this? Where are you? Why aren't you saving me now? And we can pray that way to God. We can ask him those questions, and that's what we see modeled in the psalm. In verse 1, O God, why do you cast us off forever? Why does your anger smoke against the sheep of your pasture? Remember your congregation which you've purchased of old, which you've redeemed to be the tribe of your heritage. So the promise that we are banking on with God, when we feel like he's abandoned us, we're simultaneously remembering that he's a gracious, saving God. And we're saying, God, part of me still hopes and trusts that you're saving God, that you've rescued me, that you've made me part of your tribe. I didn't grow up in your tribe, but you adopted me and you put me in your tribe. I'm in your family, God, because you're a gracious God, you're a saving God. So I'm counting on that. Now, where are you? Right? To to use the illustration of me getting left at the nursery. All right, I'm stuck in the nursery. Remember, you're my daddy. Come pick me up, right? Like, come back and get me. And so we can pray that way to God. We can simultaneously express to him, God, I'm heartbroken. I don't know what you're doing in this. And also, I I trust that you're still God and you're still this saving God. You're still this God that redeemed. You're still this God that bought me, that saved me, that purchased me to be your very own. So we can pray those things simultaneously to God. The first place that the psalmist takes us is that he asks God to remember his signs. Remember your signs, he says, We can pick this up um, in verse 3. He's saying, direct your steps to the perpetual ruins. The enemy has destroyed everything in the sanctuary. He starts talking about the horrors of the signs that God has given, the sign of the temple, the sign of God's presence with his people being torn down, right? So he says, it's destroyed everything in the sanctuary. Verse 4, your foes have roared in the midst of your meeting place. They set up their own signs for signs. Right, So God's sign was the temple. He says, here's my word, here's my law. I'm going to be your God. You're going to be my people. We're going to set up this temple. I'm going to be worshiped here. I'm going to declare who I am here. We're going to preach the word. We're going to sing God's praises in this place. And now it's all been torn down. And he's saying here, the psalmist is saying, they, the bad guys, they've set up their own signs for signs, right? So the sign used to be, The creator God of the universe is both just and absolutely righteous. He's also gracious and loving, and he'll come into your presence through sacrifices. He wants to be with you. He wants to meet with you. And so God's communicating that in the temple, but but now the sign's getting changed, right? Now that sign's getting torn down, and this new sign's being put up that says, Nebuchadnezzar is savior of the world. Babylon is savior of the world. And the God of the Hebrews is weak and can't stand up to this God, Nebuchadnezzar, to this God, Babylon. And Babylon's tanks, they didn't really have tanks, right? But their tanks are just rolling over Jerusalem. They are tearing up the world and they're saying, we are the power that's in control of everything. And so the psalmist is wrestling with that, going, God, how can you forget your signs? You had this sign communicating your presence and now it's been torn down and now this other sign is being put up, the sign of Babylon's power. He says in verse five, they were like those who swing axes in a forest of trees and all its carved wood. They broke down with hatchets and hammers. They set your sanctuary on fire. They profaned the dwelling place of your name, bringing it down to the ground. They said to themselves, we will utterly subdue them. They burned all the meeting places of God in the land. We do, we do not see our signs, he says. There's no longer any prophet. And there is none among us who knows how long. He, he's recounting the horrors of what's happened. Uh, again, something that we can do when we pray, when we 
sing, when we worship, we can actually talk about our pain. And, and I, I just want to remind you that human maturity means you, you don't just you know, throw up all your emotion all the time, right? You learn some self-control. But maturity and walking with God also means you express your pain. It's okay to express these painful, horrible things that you've been through. And you can find trusted people. You can pray these kind of things to God himself. And you can say, God, they've torn everything up. I don't understand what's going on. And he's just recounting the horrors of them going in with axes and hammers and just ripping the gold off of their temple and setting it on fire and burning everything down. And so there's actual, uh, and of course we see this in just pagan counseling as well. There's actual healing and help in the way God's made human beings when, when we recount the bad things that we've gone through, right? But we don't want to leave it there. We want to recount the bad things that we've gone through, but we also want to then move on to see that there's hope that we have in God. And here he's saying, I want to see that hope, God, but I don't see it yet. Again, if you look at verse 9, we do not see our signs. There is no longer any prophet, and there is none among us who knows how long. We don't know how long this is going to go, God. We don't, we don't know what you're up to. We don't know what's happening anymore because your presence is gone. The temple's torn down. Your word's not being taught any longer. Verse 10, he says, How long, O God, is the foe to scoff? Is the enemy to revile your name forever? Why do you hold back your hand, your right hand? Take it from the fold of your garment and destroy them. So God's right hand is his, his arm of strength, right? Typically in ancient literature, your right hand is your fighting hand, right? Some people are left-handed. I know some of you are. No offense to you. But typically, we're right-handed, right? Most people are, and that's the arm of strength. That's the sword hand. That's the, the hand of power. And what he's saying is, God, why don't you pull out that sword hand, that, that hand of strength, and show your power and defeat your enemies, but it's like you're holding it back. God, why are you, why are you sitting on your hands? Why are you holding back your, your power? Show us a sign. We don't see any sign. We don't know how long it's going to be. We don't know how, they're gonna revile, how long they're going to revile your name. They're going to mock you. They're going to set up their own signs and say that they're in charge. When, God, will you set up your signs again to communicate your faithfulness? I have a picture here of a sign on a door. It says, come in, we're open. How many of you have ever uh, gone to a business and seen a sign like this? Have you ever seen a sign like this, right? Ever, everybody, right? Not everybody raise your hand, but you've all seen this, right? This is a common thing. Businesses have signs to communicate to people. Um, and, a, and a common sign is, come on in, we're open, right? Or they can turn that sign around and say, sorry, we're closed, right? We don't want you here. Go away. Leave us alone. Um, the temple was God's sign of, come on in, we're open, right? That's the sign that God used to communicate his presence with his people. The temple was the place where he came down and met with his people and he communicated to the nations. We see that again and again through the scriptures, not just through Israel, but he did it through Israel to the nations. He communicated his presence. He communicated that he was a holy God, that he was a righteous God, that he knew we were sinners, that it wasn't a secret that we could hide from him but that also sacrifices could be made to come into his presence. And we see that come to full fruition in Jesus, who is the ultimate sacrifice, Hebrews tells us. Jesus is the ultimate sacrifice to forgive our sins and to bring us into the presence of God. So that when John the Baptist would preach and when Jesus would preach, their sign, their message was usually something like, the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God is near. The kingdom is upon us. 
They were saying, come on in, it's open. Repent, don't trust your sin anymore, but trust God. Trusting God to forgive you and the door is wide open. Jesus even used other illustrations of saying he actually is the door itself. He actually is the ladder. He is the stairway. He is the road. He's the way, the truth, and the life. And so the sign in the New Testament becomes even more clear, but it's the same sign in the Old Testament. The temple was communicating God is a holy God and a righteous God, but he's also a forgiving God and a gracious God, and he's coming to us, and he wants us to come in. He's inviting us in to his presence. And so they're asking God to remember his signs. God, show us your signs again. Show us that you are a saving God again. Show us that you are a righteous God. Show us that you are gracious. Show us that you want us to come into your presence. And he's, he's begging for them, begging for God to show those signs once more. What, what, how, how can this be translated into our time, right? Because we live so far later, the temple was rebuilt again, right? That's like what Nehemiah and... Um, the Ezra books and some, you know, some of those later books in the Old Testament are about the temple being rebuilt. And so we know there was more story that happened since, since this time. So the temple's torn down. He's begging for God to show signs. But we live in a different period of history. What, what does the temple mean in our life? What are God's signs in our life? In the New Testament, it's very clear that God's people are the temple. That, that we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. That he dwells among us. And so God dwells among us and comes to meet with the nations through us, right? Both through us as individuals and also through us gathered. And so we talk about the church having this identity both gathered. We still gather for corporate worship. We still uh, learn from God's word and we still sing God's word and we pray together. We still have the signs he's given us of baptism and communion that remind us of the covenant that he's made with us, that he's good and that he's gracious and that he's saving us. So we still gather together and gather around those signs, but we're also scattered out in the world and and we are to be the temple, the sign of God's presence. And so what I want you to see the connection with is that there are moments when we feel like God has disappeared. There's moments when we feel like God isn't in our life anymore. We don't know what's going on. But as we remember that God is the saving God, as we remember that he is the God that has made this covenant with us, that has come after us, that has saved his people, as we remember that, we see the sign. And we see the sign most clearly in Jesus himself. Je- Jesus is what crystallizes it all for us, right? Like you can, you can go back to the temple and I can summarize, well, the temple, you know, I'm kind of giving you a big picture. The temple shows God's presence with his people and that he's holy and that he's gracious. And you can go, okay, well, I read Leviticus and I'm not sure if I got that sign, right? Like sometimes there's a translation problem. We don't fully get it. But in Jesus, it's crystal clear. In Jesus, it is crystal clear. He says, I've come for you. In Jesus, we see that he gave his life for us, that he took our sins upon himself and he gives us his righteousness. And so all these signs that might have been murky in the Old Testament are now crystal clear through Jesus. And so what I'm challenging you and challenging myself to is that we would remember the sign that he's already given us, that we would remember the sign that he's already given us in Jesus, that he's a saving God. And even though my life may feel like it's completely in an utter ruin right now, I can look back at Jesus and I can say, he's come for me. He's come for me. He loves me. It's going to be okay. I don't know how long this may last, but it's going to be okay. He's come for me. He's saving me. And when I remember that sign, then I can be the sign that God has made me to be. When you remember that sign, you can be the sign that God has, re- has made you to be. 
God has made us to be his temple, to be his presence in this broken world. Yes, the world is still broken. Romans 8 makes that very clear. We're still groaning. We're still longing for everything to be fixed. It's not fixed yet, but Jesus came and he fixed the biggest problem there was, and that problem was our sin and our separation from God. And we can rejoice in that. We can remember that sign of who God is, what his character is, that he is righteous, he is holy, but he's bridged the gap to save us and bring us into his family. And when we remember that sign, that God loves us through Jesus, then we can be that sign for other people. That's my challenge to you this morning is, are you living that out? Are you uh, being that sign for others? When we, when we gather, we communicate that sign by, by being about Jesus, right? So the church gathers and, and we're going to teach about Jesus from the scriptures. We're going to sing about Jesus from the scriptures. We're going to uh, pray together and we're going to pray to Jesus as the sign of God's presence and his love for us. And we're going to remember the signs that he's given us like communion and baptism that exhibit that God is a saving God. But then when we scatter, how, how does that work itself out when we scatter, right? It, it seems sometimes clear for us, all right, we're all gathered together, we're talking about Jesus is clear, but what about the rest of the week? What about the rest of the week when life gets kind of confusing? In the New Testament, we see this really clear pattern. It's clearest, I think, in the book of Ephesians, but you see this in all the New Testament letters, really. But in the book of Ephesians, there's three chapters that say, Jesus saved you, Jesus saved you, Jesus saved you, Jesus saved you. And then the last three chapters say, so it should look like this in your life. So it should look like something. So if you're an employer, you should be the best employee you can be because Jesus saved you and he's got your future and you're taken care of. And, and your identity is no longer in how you're being treated at work. Your identity is you're a son of the king. So you can be the best employer that you can be and you can honor God in that role that he's put you in. And then it says too, we call this the household code sometimes. Like if you're a slave, if you're a master, if you're a husband, if you're a wife, if you're a child, no matter what your place in life you can live out the signs of God's goodness and God's grace in your life. It says if you're children, you should obey your parents. Because you know, really, God is your real parent. He's going to take care of you so you can trust your earthly parents. You can obey them and you can honor them. And parents, you can, you can be kind to your children. You can discipline them well, but, but not embitter them and not make them angry because you know God's got things under control. Even though you feel like, I'm a parent too, you feel like you're out of control, God's got things under control. So you can live that out in how you parent. Uh, if you're a husband, you can love your wife sacrificially like Christ loved the church. You can die for her because Jesus died for you. That's what we're called to, men. Did you hear that? I think I need to say that again. Men, we're called to die for our wives, right? A lot of us think, man, that sounds pretty cool. I'd like to take a bullet for my wife, but are you willing to take out the trash for your wife? That's my question, okay? So... Die for your wife in the glorious ways and in the not-so-glorious ways. We're called to sacrificially love them because Jesus sacrificially loved us. And wives, you're called to respect and honor your husbands even though we do not deserve it, right? You can nod your head. We do not deserve it, but you're still called to unconditionally respect us because of the grace that God has shown to you. And so we have these household codes where, where we are to be the sign of God's presence in the world even though... We live in a totally broken world and everything's falling apart and everything's in ruins and we can be angry about all the institutions that are broken down. We are to be God's presence in the world by the way that we live. Because if Jesus loved us, we're going to love other people. We're going to live differently. And that's what he calls us to, to be the sign that we long for from him. And so the next thing that he says is remember your power. 
Remember your power, God. Remember your power. You're a powerful God. You're more powerful than Babylon. So why don't you show us that you're more powerful than Babylon? If you look at verse 12, he says, Yet God, my king, is from of old, working salvation in the midst of the earth. So here he's just stating it, a statement of fact. God is my king, not Nebuchadnezzar, not Babylon. God is my king, and he works salvation from of old. He's always been the saving God. So even though it seems like in the moment the cancer's winning, or it seems like in the moment the divorce is winning or the addiction is winning, my God is a saving God and he's going to win. He's going to win. He's got this. Working salvation in the midst of the earth. He says in verse 13, it's going to get crazy here, so hold on. It says, you divided the sea by your might. You broke the heads of the sea monsters on the waters. You crushed the heads of Leviathan. You gave him his food for the creatures of the wilderness. So what in the world is he talking about there, right? Like, like yeah, he crushed the monsters. Like, what monsters, right? What, what is he talking about? Um, we're, we're of the tribe of people that take the Bible very seriously. We, that's why we're talking about it right now, right? We believe this is God's word to us. We even believe in this crazy doctrine called inerrancy, right? And what that means is we actually believe it's reliable. It doesn't, it doesn't err. It's something we can trust, Right? And so in that tribe, sometimes we, we can, sometimes our people, right, this tribe, we can take that to extreme where we want to uh, so literally interpret the scriptures that there's no room for anything poetic. But I want to make the case that you can, you can take the Bible literally and read it poetically when it's poetic. And, and I, would, I would argue, you don't have to agree with me, he might be talking about Tyrannosaurus Rex here, but I think he's talking poetically here. So I want to show you that in the text. Um, Again, there are, I think there are literal monsters in the world, right? There are monsters out there. There are crazy creatures out there that, you know, you keep discovering. Like, there are these things that live by the lava at the bottom of the sea, and they're like these creepy snakes. You know, I mean, there's all kinds of crazy monsters, real monsters in the world. And there's even ancient monsters. You know, we find dinosaur bones. We, f- we know that there are monsters, and every culture in the world believes in dragons, right? Every culture in the world believes in dragons. So I believe there's such a thing as literal monsters. But I think here... He's talking about uh, something in a poetic way. So look at it again. Verse 13, he says, you divided the sea by your might. When did God divide the sea by his might to work salvation for his people? Exodus, right? In the Exodus, he divided the sea to save his people. And then other scriptures talk about Egypt as Leviathan. Other scriptures refer to Egypt as the sea monster, and as Leviathan, Rahab is another word they use for it. So, so now read it with that in mind. They're talking about maybe Egypt as the monster. It says, you divided the sea by your might. You broke the heads of the sea monsters on the waters. You crushed the heads of Leviathan. You gave him his food for the creatures of the wilderness. You split open springs and brooks. You dried up ever-flowing streams. What he's talking about here is God's saving work in the past with his people. When you look at the Old Testament uh, Exodus, when God takes slaves out of Egypt and saves them and says, I'm going to adopt you and make you my people, that is kind of like the cross of the Old Testament. That again and again is come back, it's coming back to in the Psalms, and it's come back to in the prophets. They keep going back to Exodus. They keep saying, God, we know you're saving God because you saved us back here, right? And we have those points in our life where we can look back and say, I know God is a saving God because he saved me back here, or he saved his people back here. He did this thing where we can plant a flag in the ground and we can say, He's a saving God. And they do that continually with the Exodus. They go back and say, God formed us as his people by rescuing us out of slavery, by taking us out of Egypt, by defeating 
um, the sea monster of Egypt by conquering it and by rescuing us. And so, again, I think there are, man, I think the Bible is so true that it operates at multiple levels at the same time, right? So uh, there are real monsters, and, and we even see in Scripture that there's like this final battle still to come with the dragon, and there's all kinds of references to uh, the real dragon, not just Egypt, one of the dragons, but the real sea monster, the real dragon, and that's Satan himself, right? And what the New Testament tells us is that the ultimate monster of sin and death has been crushed by Jesus through the cross. So the biggest monster of all has been conquered. And so there's these multiple levels where this whole concept of God conquering the monsters, it operates at multiple levels. There are multiple monsters that God's conquered. I think here they're looking back to a specific point in time and they're talking about Egypt being saved out of the Exodus. But then the scripture's gonna, they're gonna unfold that in multiple ways throughout the scriptures. There's this great passage in 1 John uh, that talks about the Antichrist. We think of the Antichrist as this final monster to come, right? This final kind of satanic being. I forgot to show you my great picture of Leviathan. Here's a picture of Leviathan by Gustav Doré. He uh, would do these great biblical illustrations, and this was one that's actually tattooed on a man's chest. But, um, so this is the sea monster, the great dragon here. And again, that image is picked up, and it's used and applied to Egypt in the Exodus, but it's also applied uh, to Satan himself, the one who opposes the devil. Um, and in the end of time, there are these pictures in Revelation of God doing battle with the dragon and with the serpent. So like I said, this is uh, supposed to embody evil, supposed to embody powers that fight against God. That's then picked up in 1 John when it talks about the Antichrist. In 1 John 2.18, he says, you've heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. So we, we see kind of murkily through Scripture that there's this great Antichrist, this great anti-Messiah, this anti-Jesus that's coming, right? This this power that's going to set itself up and say, I'm the God of the universe, not Jesus, right? This is someone that's coming against Jesus. There's a great one to come, but John says there's many. There's many antichrists, right? There's all kinds of false saviors out there. And John clarifies it in 1 John 2.22. He says, who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. And so we've got an option. When we look out at the world, and I would argue that we, we fall for this option a lot, right? We could trust Jesus to be our hero, to be our Savior, to be our Messiah, to rescue us out of whatever mess we're in, or we can opt for another Messiah. We can say, you know what? I think money is really what's going to save me. Or I think respect. I think if I can climb the ladder at work, and if I can gain more respect, then I'll be where I need to be, and then we're falling on that as another Savior, as a different Christ. Or maybe it's relationships, right? Maybe you've had bad luck in your relationships, and you had bad luck again, and bad luck again, and you're thinking in your mind, if I can just find the right man or the right woman, then everything's going to be okay. Whatever it is, it might be pleasure for you. I don't know what it is that you're thinking is going to save you out of this situation, but what I would appeal to you is that only Jesus can save you. Only Jesus can save you from your struggles and from your pain and from the ruin and the misery that we're living in right now. And so the challenge for us is to remember God's power. For them, they looked back on the Exodus. God adopted us into his family by saving us out of slavery through the Exodus. For us, we look back to the cross. We look back to the cross and we see God 
adopted me into his family. He saved me out of slavery to sin by crushing the power of the ultimate monster, sin and death. It talks about that in 1 Corinthians. He crushed sin and death. Oh, death, where is your stinger? Oh, death, where is your victory? Jesus rose from the dead. He conquered death for us to save us out of that slavery. And so we look back on him as the ultimate power over the monster of sin and death. If you go on in the text here, he says uh, in verse 16, yours is the day, yours also the night. You have established the heavenly lights and the sun. You have fixed all the boundaries of the earth. You have made summer and winter. Remember this, O Lord, how the enemy scoffs and a foolish people reviles your name. So he's going back and saying, remember the sun, remember the moon, remember the boundaries, remember the way you've created all things. And throughout Scripture, we see uh, God's power exhibited through creation and redemption, through God making all things. So when you walk out, and I know you don't really want to walk out right now because it's 34 degrees, but when you go outside, you know, yesterday, it's sunny and you're like, God is amazing. He made all these beautiful things and the birds are chirping and the flowers are blooming, right? When, when we see creation, we say, God, you're so powerful. And when we see redemption, we say, God, you're so powerful. And so that's what he's doing here. That's how we remind ourselves of God's power. And not only do we remind ourselves, but we, we tell God. A, a great way to pray to God is to remind him of the promises that he's made. We remind God and we say, God, remember that you're a saving God. Remember, God, that you're the one that created all things good. Remember how awesome you are, God. And as we pray that to God, asking him to remember it in our moment, that actually encourages us in the middle of the mess that we're living in. Uh, Sometimes we call that preaching the gospel to yourself. And so we're telling God to remember his goodness, and in in the process, we're accidentally remembering his goodness ourselves. We're saying, remember what you've done. Remember how great you are, God. And so my question for you this morning is, uh, what are the powers that you are running to in your life? Just personally, what are the false messiahs or the false Christs? What are the monsters that are luring you away from God? In their context, their temptation would be to think that Babylon was absolute power. Because in the moment, Babylon seemed to be the absolute power. What's your temptation? What, what do you think is the absolute power in this world? Sometimes it's whatever's winning in your life right now, right? Whatever's got you down, whatever's got you enslaved, whatever's got its hooks in you, there's the temptation to think that that monster is going to win. But the story of the scripture is even though in the middle of the story, it seems like the bad guys are winning, God's going to win in the end. He's saved in the past and he's going to save in the future. And he's the one that we can count on to crush the monsters of sin and death. I'd encourage you to get into a position in your life where you're praying that to God and you're saying, God, I recognize that this monster that has a hold on me, this addiction, this fear, this thing that's consuming me is not really the ultimate power. I see that. I recognize that you confess that to him in prayer. You ask him to set you free. You say, God, I see that you set free in the past, that you're saving God in the past. Please save me now from this. And I'd encourage you to do that with other people as well. We talk about small groups being an environment where you come together and you're, you say, I'm just crazy enough to think that God is my hope. And so I want to look at the scriptures with other Christians and let's pray for each other and help each other in this broken world. Let's, let's help each other make it through and stop trusting in these other monsters, these other powers, and let's trust in Jesus instead of ourselves or instead of these uh, other alternative saviors. 
A, a great ministry for that is Celebrate Recovery. We talked about, we'd love everybody to visit tomorrow night. Bobby Hoops is going to be giving his testimony tomorrow, and Bobby is helping to lead Celebrate Recovery for us now. So it'd be a great night to visit, just to see it, even if you're not planning on going long term. Go join us tomorrow night. He's going to give his testimony at 6.30. But Celebrate Recovery is, is kind of specialized small groups for folks that feel really stuck with a, a particular hurt or habit or hang-up where they feel like they're not making any progress and that the monster's winning. That's a great environment to get in, to begin, again, confessing your need for Jesus to really be your Savior. I want to challenge you to get in one of those environments. The, the last thing that we see here as we move through the text is that he prays that, God, we want you to remember your little ones. God, remember your little ones. Look at verse 18. He says, remember this, O Lord, how the enemy scoffs and a foolish people reviles your name. Do not deliver the soul of your dove to the wild beasts. Do not forget the life of your poor forever. Have regard for the covenant. So the covenant is God's uh, promise to save his people, right? The covenant is promises made official through ceremonies. That's what covenant means. So God made multiple covenants with his people and the new covenant, the ultimate covenant through Jesus himself. And so the psalmist is praying here, have regard for the covenant. For the dark places of the land are full of the habitations of violence. So, uh, there's just violence. There's just craziness, right? Like the gangs are winning. Everything's falling apart. God, what's going on? Please remember your saving covenant to us. Verse 21 says, Let not the downtrodden turn back in shame. Let the poor and needy praise your name. Arise, O God, defend your cause. Remember how the foolish scoff at you all the day. Do not forget the clamor of your foes, the uproar of those who rise against you, which goes up continually saying, God, remember the poor, remember the little ones, remember the weak, remember the needy. Rise up, God, and be our hero. And a great posture of prayer to be in, a great posture of worship to be in before God is to recognize that that's the role we play. Too often we read the scripture and we read like, you know, David and Goliath and we think, well, I'm going to be David and I'm going to conquer Goliath, right? Instead of recognizing in Scripture that again and again, any hero, any victory that we see in the Scripture points to Jesus, the ultimate hero, to God being the real hero of every story and every text. And so we should place ourselves in the posture when we read David and Goliath, we should be thinking, oh yeah, I'm like the Israelites trembling there waiting for a champion to save me. That's really who I am. And that's the posture that the psalmist puts himself in here. He says, God, remember your little ones. Remember your needy ones. We're waiting for you to show up. We're waiting for you to save us. I have a picture here of some, some poor children. These are children in India, third world conditions. When, when we remember needy ones, we show the world what God is like. And so the psalmist is saying, God, remember us. We're the needy ones. We're the poor children that are broken. When you place yourself in that posture and you recognize that God is the kind of God that comes to you in grace, not because you deserve it because you're so awesome, because you're the champion. No, he comes to you as the champion because you're needy, because we're broken, because we're the little ones. And when we recognize that we're the little ones, then God actually uses us to help other little ones, right? One of my favorite uh, quotes is, it's like, I'm one poor beggar showing other beggars where to find bread. And so when we come to God in the posture of neediness and humility, and we recognize the grace that he's shown us in Jesus, then we can, we can be that help to other people. But it's only when we have that posture. It's only when we recognize our own neediness can we be used by God then to help others. 
And so the challenge is that we would do that, right? That we would be those kind of people that step in and help the poor, that help the needy, that help your, your friend that's struggling, that we would be that, but we can only be that when we remember that God is our Savior, that we're needy and He is the one that's saving us. So there are practical ways that we work this out, right? Like we, we value children, we value those who are weak, we value those who are poor, and we honor those who have needs and we try to meet needs as we can. That's just part of what it means to be a Christian and to honor the weak, recognizing, you know what? I'm weak too, so I'm going to honor the weak around me. I'm going to do what I can to be like Jesus in their presence. And of course, not, not in a way that makes it worse. You know, sometimes people are in a, in a bad spot, and when you help them out, you're actually just helping them get worse, right? So we want to do it smartly. We want to do it intelligently. We, we've talked about this great book called When Helping Hurts, and it talks about helping people in a smart way. But we're going to be in Guatemala in a week helping those that are needy. And we're doing that in the name of Jesus because we believe that Jesus has helped us. So my question for you is, is do you have opportunities like that? I believe you do, right? Because as I said earlier, just because we're human beings, there's lots of us in this room right now and lots of your friends and lots of your neighbors that are living in the moment uh, that, that these people are feeling right now, living in this moment of feeling like, God, where are you? Like everything's falling apart. We're living around people like that all the time. There's always someone that's broken right next to you. And as, as you maintain that posture of humility before God, God, I recognize the grace you've given me in Jesus, then you're going to be that hope for those broken people around you. God will use you. God will use you to help those people, to help them with actions, practically help them, but also with words of hope about this Jesus who has given us this ultimate sign of his presence and his grace for us. Well, as we conclude, I just want to remind you of uh, what we're going to do here in just a minute, we're going to share in communion together. And communion is the sign that Jesus gave us to remember him. That's what he says. He says to remember his covenant. He says, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. He says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And so we not only pray to God to remember that he's a saving God, like Asaph, we can, we can pray the same kind of prayer, right? We can say, God, remember that you're saving God. Remember your power. Remember your signs. Remember your little ones. We can pray that to him. But God also reminds us, hey, I've, I've shown you. I've, I've remembered. And the, the ultimate remembering of his gracious covenant is, is given to us in the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. When we see that, we see that God has remembered us. And he encourages us to remember what he's done, to remember what he's done. Let me pray for us. God, we thank you that you remembered us. We thank you that you came for us. We thank you that you saved us. We didn't deserve it, but you came. In grace, you gave yourself for us. You took our sins upon yourself. You give us your righteousness so that you delight in us as your very own children. God, help us to live in a new way because of that delight that you have for us as your little ones. And as we do that, I pray that we would remember your power and salvation that you showed us on the cross and we would remember to be the sign of your presence among your people. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.